0: Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you are enjoying these studies, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. In this Torah portion, Abraham went to war. We don't often think of Abraham as a warrior. He is a man of peace. He makes peace with Lot giving him his choice of the best of the land. He makes peace with Abimelech, the Philistine king, giving him livestock to vouch for his integrity and even praying for his healing and the healing of his household after Abimelech had abducted Sarah. He's a peacemaker, not a warrior. But there is this one time when Abraham did go to war. The story reads like an apocalyptic precursor to the war of Gog and Magog. A coalition of nations invade the holy land, including Mesopotamian nations like Iran and Iraq, and one character called Tidal, king of Goyim. That is title, the king of the nations. They carry off Lot and his family and the inhabitants of Sodom as hostages and booty. A survivor escapes to tell Abraham about what has happened, Abraham arms 318 men born in his household and he heads out to rescue Lot. He overtakes the invaders, defeats them, and saves the captives. The sages rightfully wondered how Abraham could have defeated these enormous invading armies with only 318 men. The Midrash correlated the Haftarah reading which says he delivers up nations before him understanding him as Abraham, and subdues kings before him. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. That's Isaiah 41 verse 2. The Midrash explains, Abraham and his men had no weapons, so they threw dust and chaff at the enemy. God miraculously transformed the dust and the chaff into swords and arrows which came down upon the enemy and at the time of Shabbat Lech Lecha, the IDF is reducing targets in Gaza to dust and chaff, raining down Israel's wrath upon them. When I was learning Torah, the rabbi once asked the class, why is it that the world condemns Israel for the smallest violation of human rights, yet looks away from the injustices and travesties committed by the Arab nations that are attacking us. Nobody had an answer. So, he answered his own question. It's because the world expects more from Jews, because it expects more from us, because it knows that we represent God. And for the most part, Israel has done so. I know it's contrary to popular opinion, contrary to the firehose of propaganda spewed out by Hamas supporters, the Muslim Arab world, liberal academia, liberal media, the anti-Western thought leaders. But it's true. Israel operates at a higher ethical standard in combat than most any nation in the world. And if you doubt that, compare any other open conflict in the Middle East. Or maybe go ask the civilians in Syria, for example, how things have been going for them during the never-ending civil war in Syria. Israel really does go the extra mile to minimize civilian casualties in these conflicts. The IDF warns civilians in targeted areas to evacuate with phone calls, text messages, leaflets, and other means. It uses knocker bombs to alert people that a real bomb is about to drop and they should vacate a facility. The IDF and Bet have been known to abort numerous mission operations to avoid harming non-combatants. The IDF's tactics go beyond what is required by the Geneva Convention, so much so that military analysts have cautioned the IDF, asking them how they can expect to succeed while handcuffing themselves. Contrast those tactics to other nations at war, such as Russia's brutal war against Ukraine such as our own shock and awe blitz of Baghdad, or compare with the civilian casualties of World War II when the Allies firebombed whole population centers in Germany and Japan in order to win the war. Hamas uses human shields, militarizes its civilian population, digs tunnels underneath civilian population centers from which they operate, and administers their efforts from these tunnels where they store weapons and rockets and munitions, and where their terrorist soldiers find shelter all beneath civilian populations. At the same time they are creating reinforced underground facilities, Hamas makes no effort to create bomb shelters for their own civilians. Why? Because they want civilian casualties. They engineer all these circumstances to maximize civilian casualties. That's the strategy. They need those casualties to inflame world outrage. That's how they operate. And that's why the number of civilian casualties in this war is going to be catastrophic. And one has to keep in mind that Israel's fight is not merely a policing action, but rather an existential fight against an enemy sworn to the elimination of the Jewish state and the extermination of every Jewish man, woman, and child from the river to the sea. As the bloody massacre of October 7 demonstrates, and as the last 50 years of Palestinian terrorism have repeatedly demonstrated, there is no concern for civilian lives coming from the other side of this conflict. But I'm not going to argue about the ethics of armed conflict, or the secular world's assessment of Israel's conduct in this engagement. For this teaching, I want to address a question fundamental to my own perspective as a disciple of Yeshua and a Bible teacher, and that is to explain why I support the existence of the State of Israel and its right to defend itself and prosecute a war against Palestinian terrorists and Arab aggression. Last week, as the bombing of Gaza began, I received a message from a disciple of our Master who harbors enormous compassion for the concerns of the downtrodden, the poor, the disenfranchised, including the displaced Palestinian population of the Gaza Strip. He's not a Zionist in any sense, but he is a devout Bible-believing disciple. He asked me how it is possible, from a biblical perspective, to endorse the bombing of Gaza He argued that he sees no evidence in the scripture to justify Israeli aggression and, more saliently, sees no evidence in the scriptures to justify a militarized Zionism. He's not alone in those convictions. A majority of Christians and an increasing number of evangelicals share that perspective. It's been well articulated by leading theologians like John Piper, Gary Burge, and even N.T. Wright, It's the majority sentiment in the Christian church today. What's more, my friend mistakenly observed that Orthodox Jews do not support Zionism, which one might mistake to mean that true Torah Judaism neither supports the modern state of Israel or the Jewish people's religious and historical claim to the land of Israel, but that's actually not true. Most religious Jews are indeed Zionist, albeit religious Zionists and not secular Zionists, and there is a difference there. Full disclosure, I identify as a religious Zionist myself, for reasons I will shortly explain. The term makes me feel a little uncomfortable because I'm not comfortable being lumped together under the same title with the illegal settler movement or with the type of religious Zionist radicals we too often see provoking Palestinians and encroaching upon private property in the name of God and so forth. Extremists like that only exacerbate the problem inhabiting and perpetuating stereotypes and generally giving Jewish people and Judaism a bad name, Chilul Hashem. Nevertheless, the shoe called Religious Zionist does fit snugly on my foot, so I'm going to take a little walk in it. Moreover, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob could all also be described as Religious Zionists. Moses was certainly a Religious Zionist, Joshua Definitely a religious Zionist. David, religious Zionist. All the prophets were religious Zionists. And Yeshua is without question the biggest religious Zionist of them all. As I read the scriptures, I find no evidence anywhere to justify anti-Zionism. But why are we talking about Zionism? Well, the whole world is using the term When the Arab world and the Palestinian cause and the critics of Israel and the progressive left use the term Zionism rather than using the term the state of Israel, it's a thinly veiled ideological bias against the state and more often than not against the Jewish people in general. It's the language of the Muslim Arab world that has never recanted its calls for the genocidal eradication of the Jewish state. It's the language of the Muslim Arab world that refuses to even dirty its mouth by saying the words State of Israel, instead referring to the nation of Israel derisively as the Zionist entity. If you were to listen to the world today, or the protesters who are filling the streets of our cities and marching on college campuses in support of Gaza and in support of Hamas, you would assume that the word Zionism is synonymous with words like fascism, racism, bigotry, colonialism, tyranny, brutality, and banditry. That's not what Zionism means. Zionism is a political, social movement that began in the late 19th century in response to European anti-Semitism. The original Zionists posited that the Jewish people should have a homeland of their own rather than living as a small beleaguered and persecuted minority in other lands at the mercy and caprice of other nations. Naturally, Zionism looked back to the historical homeland of the Jewish people, which at the time was not a free and independent Palestine, but a province of the Ottoman Empire. Those original Zionists were primarily a secular movement born out of the Jewish Enlightenment. The fathers of modern Zionism, such as Theodor Herzl, did not necessarily believe in God or the Bible. They believed in the Jewish people's need for a homeland where they could escape the hatred of Europe. Those secular Zionists considered a homeland, a Jewish homeland, and a Jewish state as an existential necessity for the future of the Jewish people, and that turned out to be prophetic. Zionism came into being only a generation before the Holocaust. Like I said, the original Zionists were not necessarily Bible believers. Many of them were socialists and communists. They were liberal progressives of their generation. The Jewish homeland, in their opinion, did not necessarily have to be the Holy Land. Some Zionists suggested territory in Uganda as a possibility. And that's what secular Zionism is, is really. It's the conviction that if the Jewish people are going to survive into the future, they need a homeland and a state to defend them. At the same time, there was a much older form of Zionism. Today, we can call it religious Zionism. religious Zionism. Religious Zionists were also looking for the opportunity to return to the land of Israel in order to fulfill the biblical commandment and prophetic aspiration to do so. That's part and parcel of the Jewish religion. Another name for religious Zionism is Judaism. I'm not talking about Reform Judaism, which does not necessarily believe in God or the Torah and therefore is not necessarily invested in the covenant terms or prophetic future of the land, nor am I speaking about conservative Judaism, which does not believe in the authority of the Bible and can therefore adopt secular perspectives when convenient and expedient to do so. I'm talking about Judaism Judaism. In Torah Judaism, the Jewish people pray three times a day, every day, for God to gather the Jewish people from the four corners of the world, return the Jewish people to the land of promise, and establish the Jewish state under a Davidic monarchy out of Jerusalem. Religious Judaism has never lost sight of this goal and this ambition. And if it is possible to do so, it is understood as a divine mandate and Biblical obligation for the Jewish people to occupy the land God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's easy to understand why the secular world rejects religious Zionism. The secular person does not believe the Bible or God's covenant promises to the Jewish people or even in God. But it's harder for me to understand how any Bible-believing person can denounce the Jewish aspiration to occupy the historical borders of the land of Israel. today. I want to take a look at religious Zionism, its aspirations, its claims, and its biblical basis. It's important for me to articulate these things because, to be honest, I've always considered them to be so self-evident that I have never before done so. I grew up in a home that you could call Christian Zionist, in that my father took the Bible literally, and he took the Bible's promises about the land of Israel and the Jewish people literally. He was writing on the subject in 19. 1947, making an argument from the Bible for the right of a Jewish state to form in British Mandate Palestine, many months before the UN vote. When I started practicing Messianic Judaism back in the early 1990s, the evangelical church in America could be broadly characterized as Christian Zionist in that, under the eschatology of dispensationalism, evangelicals believed that the Jewish people remain God's chosen nation and are destined to return to the land of Israel in the end of days in preparation for the second coming and a literal kingdom on earth. It took me a long time to realize that most Christians don't believe in that and don't believe in a literal second coming and certainly don't believe in a literal kingdom on earth and they and they definitely don't believe that the promises to Israel about the land of Israel are intended to be taken literally. Let's start with Abraham because that's our Torah portion. In this Torah portion, God calls Abraham, Avram, to leave his homeland to travel to the land of Canaan. He makes a covenant promise to give him the land of Canaan, to give the land to Abraham's children. So, the, the Parsha begins, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation." And I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's Genesis 12, one through three. A little further on in the passage, it says, they set out for the land of Canaan. They came to the land of Canaan. Avram passed through the land as far as Shechem to the Oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanites were then in the land The Lord appeared to Avram and said, To your descendants, to your seed, to your children, I will give this land. Genesis 12, 5-7 Okay, a few chapters later, the Lord appears again to Abraham and seals these promises by making a covenant with him, guaranteeing that his descendants will be as uncountable as the stars and that they will inherit the land of Canaan. But thanks to the ingenuity of replacement theology and the church's relentless quest to read the Bible as God's big book of spiritual promises to the Gentiles, most Christians don't realize that the covenant promises to Abraham in this Torah portion are the main plot, the main plot point of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament both. From this Torah portion, To the end of the book of Revelation, when New Jerusalem descends to earth, the major tension of the Bible that needs to be resolved focuses on the question, how is God going to keep his promises to Abraham? Namely, the promise that his children will inherit the land of Canaan and dwell in it. And that's the main thrust of the whole Bible. If you can't see that, you aren't really reading the Bible. You are reading the text through a theological cipher that has been placed over the text, over your eyes. You're reading the Bible through theologically tinted glasses, and the color of the tint is called replacement theology. Think through the stories of the Bible. What are they about? The book of Genesis. The patriarchs, who are supposed to be inheriting the land of promise, find themselves living as nomads therein, and often forced outside the land of promise. That's the tension. The book of Genesis is about those promises to give their children the land. The stories are all about obstacles to that realization. Abraham and Sarah, for example, need a son, not because they're so desperate to become parents, but because they need an heir to whom the covenant promise of inheriting the land of Canaan can be transferred. This is the whole point of the miraculous birth of Isaac. It's not to teach us that God can do miracles or to illustrate the power of unwavering faith. It's to affirm that God is going to make good on his promise to Abraham's seed that Abraham's seed will inherit this land. Tension occurs when Abraham has to leave the land and go into Egypt during a famine or enter into Philistia. Tension occurs when he has to deal with invaders who enter the land and kidnap his kinsmen. Tension occurs when Abraham's wife Sarah dies and despite God's promise about the land, Abraham has no place in the land to bury his wife. Tension occurs when he has to vie with the Philistines for water rights in the land. Those are Abraham's stories. Even the story of the birth of Ishmael is introduced as an obstacle to the ultimate fulfillment of those promises because it appears as if Ishmael will be the heir of the land. Hashem has to intervene and state, through Isaac your seed will be reckoned. The Isaac stories are almost exactly the same set of issues, almost the same stories, culminating in the critical question of which one of Isaac's sons will inherit the promise of God gave to Abraham regarding the land of Israel, Eretz Israel. That's what the whole Jacob and Esau conflict is about. It's about the land. Which of these sons will inherit the land? The tension in the Jacob stories are about Jacob's exile from the land, his desire to return to the land, and how he must escape from Laban and get past Esau to enter the land, and how he then has to contend with the Canaanites in the land. And the Joseph stories are about Joseph's exile from the land and the story of his, of his family back in the land. And the book of Genesis ends with Joseph and his brothers outside the land in Egypt, looking toward the day when they can return to the land. He makes his brothers and his children swear a vow to bring his bones back to the land. Don't Leave me in Egypt. Suffice to say, the book of Genesis is about the children of Abraham obtaining the land. That's the national story of the Jewish people. The book of Exodus is the same. The children of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. Somehow we need to get them out of Egypt and into the land that God promised to give to their forefathers. God wants to dwell there with them in their midst. God wants to dwell with Israel in the land. Moses is sent to make it happen. The whole book of Exodus is about getting the children of Israel out of Egypt and back to the land with the presence of God. The book of Numbers is a collection of stories about the journey to the land, and the great tragedy of the book of Numbers occurs when the children of Israel fail to go up and take possession of the land. For that sin, God damns the entire generation to die in the wilderness. Deuteronomy presents Israel's refusal to take possession of the land as a national sin and a failure on par with making the golden calf. The book of Deuteronomy picks up the story as the children of Israel are about to enter the land. Deuteronomy is a collection of sermons urging the children of Israel not to forfeit the opportunity to enter and conquer the land. Moses urges them again and again, be strong and courageous, go up, take the land, and that's the thrust of the whole book. But it's also peppered with commandments that can be performed only in the land of Israel. Moreover, the book of Deuteronomy makes it incumbent upon the Jewish people to live in the land, and if they do not, they cannot fulfill the commandments Deuteronomy concludes with covenant blessings for righteousness and obedience that can only be fulfilled in the land of Israel, blessings upon the Jewish people in the land. It also contains a series of covenant curses as consequences for national unfaithfulness which begin with problems in the land, such as invaders and agricultural problems, but ultimately result in exile from the land. And even if Israel goes into exile, Hashem assures the nation that he will return them to the land. That's Deuteronomy. And that's the Torah. The book of Joshua follows the same theme with the conquest and settlement of the land of Canaan. The book of Judges contains a collection of stories about about the tribal confederation of Israel trying to hold on to the land without the central authority of a king. The book of Ruth is about one family's redemption of property in the land through a leveret marriage. First and Second Samuel tell the story of establishing a Jewish monarchy to defend the land and govern it. First and 2 Kings narrate the successes and failures of that monarchy, ending with the tragic punishments of deportations and exiles from the land under the prophetic promises of returning to the land. That theme gets picked up in Daniel, who prays for a return to the land and sees visions of how it will come about. It is the main theme of Ezra and Nehemiah, two books focused exclusively on the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Moreover, all of the biblical prophets are obsessed only with this theme of Israel's presence in the land and how repentance will preserve them in the land while sin and covenant infidelity will result in exile from the land. In either case, whether the reward or the punishment, it's tied up with Israel's presence in the physical land of Canaan. Those same prophets also predict a coming Redeemer, a son of David, who will gather the exiles of Israel and return the exiles to the land of their fathers. This coming Redeemer will defeat the nations that oppose the Jewish people in the land. That future Redeemer is called the Messiah. So, in a nutshell, the whole Tanakh is about Zionism, Israel's aspirations to dwell in the promised land. When Israel is dwelling in the land under a godly king like David or Solomon, things are as they should be. When they are in danger of exile because of apostasy or idolatry, things are out of kilter, and the prophets call for repentance. When they are in exile, the theme of the Bible turns to look toward their redemption and return to the land of Israel. The biblical prophets idealize that ultimate redemption and return under King Messiah as the kingdom of God on earth, the coming kingdom, and the Messianic era. To divorce this religion and this book from Israel's relationship to the land requires a complete rewriting of the text and creation of a completely new religion. The Church gets around that by teaching replacement theology and a new religion. The Church teaches that, when the Jewish people failed to receive Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died for their sins, they forfeited the covenant, lost their place as God's chosen people, and therefore lost their rights to the land of Israel. The Church teaches that the Jewish people are no longer Israel, because they have been spiritually replaced by the Church, since they are no longer the true Israel. The promises God gave to Israel about the land of Israel now belong to the Christians and to the Church. The Church teaches that God canceled His entire covenant with the Jewish people except for the curses of the Torah, which for some reason still apply. In other words, Christians get the blessings, Jews get the curses. That's the teaching of replacement theology. Through this process, the whole Tanakh and the existence of the Jewish people is reduced to an interesting backstory for Christianity. The Christian church teaches that the Torah has been canceled and the Jewish people have been replaced. And that's also why the vast majority of the church also denies a literal coming kingdom on earth. Instead, they spiritualize the message about the coming kingdom to refer to the church and to Christianity. So, it's no big leap from there to come to the conclusion that the Jewish people have no biblical right to claim the land, or any inheritance therein. The church points to the New Testament as evidence that the promises God gave to the nation of Israel have now been universalized as spiritual promises for all nations and that the story is no longer one of local nationalism or a single people or ethnic group or nation. Rather, all of that has been replaced by the multinational church. The Jewish people have been replaced by the Christians. The Jewish Christians have been absorbed into the one new man of Christian identity. And the land of Israel has been replaced by the universal kingdom of Christianity. And all the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the Jewish people have been fulfilled in Jesus, the founder of Christianity. And that's what the church teaches on this subject. If you subscribe to that reading of the scripture, Zionism and religious Zionism make no sense to most of the church. Zionism and the Jewish people taking possession of the land of Israel appears to be a big step backwards into a more primitive religion from Old Testament times. It's missing the point. But that's not what the New Testament teaches at all. On the contrary, the New Testament is primarily concerned with the fulfillment of the prophetic promises that God made about sending a Redeemer to establish Israel in the land and to restore the Davidic monarchy and usher in the literal kingdom on earth. Read Luke 1, which identifies the child of Miriam of Nazareth as the promised Redeemer who will establish David's kingdom. In that literal kingdom, The Messiah is to sit upon the throne of David in literal Jerusalem and literally rule over all the other nations. The gospel message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, calls upon Israel and all people to get in line with that program. In the New Testament, the death of Yeshua is interpreted through Isaiah 53 where the suffering servant is understood as an atonement for the sake of the nation of Israel in order to bring the redemption and fulfill the covenant promises. Moreover, the New Testament focuses on the Messiah's return when he will gather the exiles of Israel and return them to the land of Israel. That's his job. The Messiah's main job, according to the Bible, is to redeem Israel from exile and gather the exiles back to plant them in the land of Israel and establish his kingdom there over all the earth, even if he has to raise the dead to do it. Somehow, all of that has been utterly lost on the church, which has reduced the New Testament to a manual for obtaining entrance into heaven after death through participation in the church. So, it's not surprising to realize that most Christians don't understand Zionism, neither secular Zionism, nor religious Zionism, and that most of the church does not support the state of Israel. One might argue, I do understand the perspective of religious Zionism, and I take the Bible at face value, but we need to understand the Bible's promises about the Jewish people being returned to the land. Those are intended only for the future when the Messiah comes. Until then, Israel needs to remain in exile and the land should be left to the Palestinian people. That's a perspective shared by a small fringe element of Orthodox Judaism, which rejected the secular and worldly philosophies of Zionism and said they want to wait for Messiah. But it doesn't make sense. At no point does the Bible indicate that the Jewish people should sit in exile until the coming of the Messiah. Instead, it indicates that in the end of days, God will summon his people back to the land of Israel and that the Jewish people are already in the land when the Messiah comes, fights the nations that rise against Israel in the war of Gog and Magog, and gathers in the remaining exiles, even those he has to raise from the dead. We already know that the modern state of Israel is not the kingdom of King Messiah and that this is not the messianic era. The modern state of Israel is a secular country with secular, worldly values. And the government of the state of Israel is just as fallible and broken as most any other government in the Western world today. No one would make the argument that Israel has handled the Palestinian refugee problem well—not after the war for independence and not after the Six-Day War. The fact that Gaza exists as it does, essentially existing as a penal colony for displaced peoples and a breeding ground for terrorism and the radicalization of its population, that was never going to work as a solution. So here we are, in a real mess that's been 75 years in the making. Nor should we be so naive to contend that the state of Israel has a perfect humanitarian record. It's a better record than those countries occupying the UN Human Rights Council and a better better record than any other nation contending with a population segment intent on revolution. But it's far from perfect. Moreover, religious Zionists should be the ones leading the charge to say, let's treat the stranger in our midst well, as the Torah tells us. We should be the ones saying, the Palestinians are not Canaanites they are sons of our father abraham and we must find a way to coexist with dignity for both our peoples that's exactly what has happened with the majority of israeli palestinians one wonders how things might be different today if israel had invested more into the displaced palestinian population for their success education and establishment it's possible history could have taken many different turns All of that is to say that Israel is not perfect, nor is the government of Israel above criticism. But Israel's failures in this regard do not obviate God's unchanging promises or the Jewish people's lease on the land of promise. Injustices committed by Israel's government do not cancel the Torah. Christian pastors argue, but their sin puts them under the curse of the law and severs their right to the land. If you make that argument, you are arguing that the covenant is still in effect for Israel. If so, you have to concede that the same covenant that curses Israel for disobedience also guarantees Israel's right to the land and repeatedly encourages the nation to be strong, courageous, and take possession of it. It's the same book of the Bible. Other pastors and teachers argue but their rejection of Christ disqualifies them. They are branches cut off from the olive tree. That's just ignorant theology and misuse of Paul's teachings. The Apostle Paul is careful to avoid the implication that God's promises have failed or that Israel has stumbled so far as to have fallen. Instead, he reminds his readers that the covenants of promise belong to the Jewish people. It's preposterous to suggest that, in order to qualify as a member of the nation of Israel, a Jewish person needs to first become a Christian or a Messianic Jew. That's not how nationhood or peoplehood works in the Bible, or anywhere. That's how replacement theology works. But what if the people of Israel are so sinful in their fallen and secular state that they no longer merit or deserve to live in the land— Some would argue that because Israel is a secular state and largely secular population, the Jewish people incur the punishment of exile described in the Torah. Let's consider that argument for a moment. It's the same argument the Church has used for a thousand years to justify the historic brutalization of the Jewish people. But if the sins of the nation should accumulate to such a point, that the attribute of justice demands another exile from the land of Israel, God forbid? That's God's purview to declare, not ours, not the churches, not John Piper's or Gary Burge's, not the UN Human Rights Council, not the Arab League, not the Muslim Brotherhood, Hezbollah or Hamas. If we take the Bible literally, we must concede that the Bible grants sovereignty of the land of Israel to the Jewish people. It does not merely describe a historical situation from the past. It states a deed of occupancy for all generations and also for the future. It's impossible to deny that the Bible is almost singularly focused on the idea of the Jewish nation in the land of Israel. If that's the case, and it is the case, then one who denies the Jewish people the right of self-determination in the land of Israel opposes the Bible. And opposes God. And if we concede that the Bible grants the Jewish people the right to occupy the land as a nation, then we must also grant that nation the right to self defense against terrorists, against enemy nations, and against an existential threat, as we would in the case of any other secular nation. To insist that Israel alone, out of all the other nations on the earth, does not have the right to fight or make war for the defense of its own people is to ask the Jewish people to die as martyrs. But if you grant that Israel should have the right like any other sovereign nation to defend itself then you must grant it the right to retaliate when attacked. Just as we would for any other nation such as Ukraine, Poland or the United States. Nor should we condemn Israel for human rights violations while granting a pass to states that actually do carry out egregious human rights violations and make war without regard for the lives of civilians like Russia, China, Turkey, Syria, Iran. It's not the place of Christian theologians to sit in judgment and dictate the moral standards of the Israeli government. God himself holds the Jewish people to the Bible's higher standards. But that does not give the church the right to declare to Israel, you have not met our moral criteria. Therefore, your covenant with your God is annulled and your inheritance forfeit. Surrender the promised land. Finally, perhaps one might argue, but we are told to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors and to turn the other cheek and not to repay evil with evil. How can a Christian approve of Israel's bombardments and militarization? It's true that Yeshua did tell us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors and to turn the other cheek. That's all true on the level of the individual, but not on a national level. That's a straight and narrow path Yeshua called his disciples to walk upon, but that is not the biblical prescription for a sovereign, for a government, or for a nation, Yeshua does not overturn the Torah, and the Torah calls for a leader and a government to exercise justice and righteousness and to go to war against one's enemies. If we were to tell a judge presiding over a court of law to exonerate a perpetrator on the basis of, judge not lest you be judged, or on the basis of not repaying evil with evil, we would be asking for that judge to commit an injustice. Forgiveness and mercy are the prerogative of the victim, not the prerogative of the governing authority. It's the government's job to protect its citizens and to execute justice and righteousness. If a government abdicates that responsibility, it fails. Christians have utterly failed to understand Yeshua's teachings because, assuming that he has cancelled the Torah, They have conflated his calling of personal discipleship with communal and national governance. That's a recipe for disaster that looks like the anarchist ethics of the extreme progressive left. That's not what Yeshua was talking about, and that's why he prefaces the Sermon on the Mount with the warning, Do not think I have come to abolish the Torah. In summary, This is the position of religious Zionism as I understand it from the Bible. The Jewish people are God's people. The land of Israel is God's land. And, God gives the land of Israel to the Jewish people and tells them to take possession of it. That does not mean they are exempt from humanitarian concerns for the Palestinian population nor does it grant them the right to mistreat the stranger or their fellow human beings. It does not sanction illegal violation of personal property rights, but it certainly does give them the right to lay claim to their historical and covenantal inheritance from the river to the sea. We might not like it, but it's not up to us, not if we accept the authority of the Bible. If you don't like it, your argument is not with me. It's with the Bible, and it's with God himself, who, in the end of days, summons all nations to break themselves upon the heavy stone of Zion, the testing stone. In that day, the Messiah Yeshua will rise to the defense of his people, his garments stained red, not with his own blood, not this time, but with the blood of his enemies. And he will stand upon the Mount of Olives and all of his holy ones with him. Take on my yoke. And learn from me and find rest for your soul.